0: Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring all the unexplained mysteries of existence, the paranormal, or anything dark, fringe, or weird in the world. Alright, so today on the show we have an overview of the Anunnaki lore from Zachariah Sitchin. As I've already stated, there have been countless theories to these ancient texts, with many of them often contradicting each other. So remember not to believe anything, just absorb the knowledge also. Though I have read Sitchin, there's a lot of books out there that he wrote with information that is incredibly dense, so I'm not going to be 100% accurate and include all the details that some may think that I should, it's just an overview. In earlier episodes of this series on the Nephilim, we discovered that there were two generations of Anunnaki. The original ones, who are analogous to mythological figures all over the world. Anu, who is basically El, Kronos, Yahweh, etc, and that they had offspring, who are analogous to the Elohim, angels, the Greek pantheon. And then Anunnaki had children hybrids with humans, the giants, Nephilim, or Giki, And eventually, their first go-around ended in a cataclysm-slash-flood that put a reset button on human civilization with many of the early human civilizations, such as Sumeria and Egypt, guided by the knowledge from the survivors. And throughout these tales, we have the theme of Prometheus bringing knowledge to humans to free them from their shackles as a metaphor, such as Enki concerning the Anunnaki specifically. And remember, I'm not trying to tell any absolutes or say that all that I say is facts at all, I can't really express that enough, So please no need to be rude to me or to send me like emails that I'm stupid and this and that and this is this and that and that and you should know this and blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't care. I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone. I'm just covering lore. If you're offended or shaken by anything I say on this show, it kind of just means that you're naive and easy to manipulate. So grow a pair and let your imagination maybe have some fun once in a while. Things don't have to be black and white and categorized into little boxes, because in the end, the vast collection of all human knowledge is just a grain of sand on the beach. So in this episode, let's just dive into the Sitchin stuff and remember to never believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. So let's get into it then, shall we? It's time to get weird. I'm your host Tim Hacker and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. people absolutely adore Sitchin and take his work as literal fact and I want to be clear that I have a lot of respect for Sitchin though if you're a regular listener you know I hold to no dogma anyway according to the lore the Anunnaki originally came to Earth in the first place because they were having issues with their own planet and without action it probably wouldn't really be able to sustain life for much longer this issue with their planet has different perspectives, but basically the ozone layer had a massive hole in it, so all the big brains of the Anunnaki got together to figure out how to fix their planet. They were a warlike species and had fought against each other throughout their planet's history, their entire history. Sound familiar? By this time in their history their planet was pretty messed up, but eventually they managed to unify under a single king. and which began a new age in the histories of the nibiru ants. And in this new age, it became pretty obvious that their planet lacked the resources that they needed to create the tech to fix their planet, Nibiru. They needed minerals not really found on Nibiru, specifically gold as the main mineral that they needed. They had the technology to grind it down into a spray and uh, mixed it with other scientific chemical concoctions and they utilized this to fix their ozone layer but the amount that they needed to spray into the atmosphere at the level required was just not on the planet they'd need a massive amount of this mineral not really native to their planet and i know what some of you might be thinking and i'll answer your question really quick just so you don't have to go look it up but yes gold is classified as both a mineral and a metal but still by this time in their 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 history the Anunnaki on Nibiru were ancient and highly advanced, far more advanced than we are presently. However, there are many unique aspects not only to the civilization, but the planet as well. Nibiru is on a bizarre orbit around the sun, unlike any other planet in the solar system, and is many times the size of Earth, and is pretty much unlike most other planets in the cosmos. It is far larger than Earth and has a strange atmosphere and internal heating that allows it to remain habitually further from the sun than most normal planets while still maintaining life. But the planet-wide volcanoes that sustained their planet's unique atmosphere were becoming less and less active because of the planetary damage. The planet itself only gets close every so-so thousand years, I mean uh, close to Earth. But the Anunnaki discovered a planet Highly rich in minerals they needed right in their backyard, which was very convenient. But then, all of a sudden, before a lot of uh, the stuff they needed to do to fix Naguru was really getting going, the recent king that united all of the Anunnaki, King An, died. And there was political scheming with the Anunnaki, named Anu being declared king, and his rival, Alalu, who also claimed to be king, fleeing the planet think very Game of Thrones, and that sums up the the Nibiruan politics very well. But the other claimant to the throne, Alalu got away in a spaceship and headed to the seventh planet. Though not on purpose, the Earth is the seventh planet to the Anunnaki because they count from their planet being the first, and it was Alalu who actually discovered the gold slash minerals that they needed to repair their planet upon Earth. Alalu sent back word that he'd found all of the gold that they would ever need to fix their planet. 5,000 years after Alalu's escape, Anu sent his son Enki to Earth and see if Alalu was lying or not. Yeah, 5,000 years. These Anunnaki live a very, very long time and are basically immortal. But, uh, they sent scout ships to check out Earth and then not too soon afterwards set up bases to begin mining. These Nibiruans were given the title of Anunnaki in honor of the one who sent them, Anu. They landed in what would become Sumeria and established their main base, Eden. And after a while, they sent their first shipment back from the gold that they'd harvested from water, but it was a meager amount. However, it did test positive to work, and the OK was given for a full mining operation. The ship that they used for this first shipment back to Nibiru was Alalu's that he'd used to escape Nibiru 5,000 years prior. And they found illegal weapons on it that they hid under the Earth's crust before leaving. These weapons probably being nuclear. Remember these buried weapons though because they come into play later in a pretty big way. Anyway, so more of the Nibiruans were added to the Anunnaki ranks and they expanded their operation on Earth greatly but the gold that they were sending back wasn't nearly the amount that they needed to repair the planet. So far, the mining had only been surface deep, near rivers and uh, whatnot, and uh, harvested out of the ocean. So they had to expand the operation, and Enu sent his other son Enlil to see why Enki was taking so long. When Enlil arrived on Earth, Enki told him it was very hard to mine on Earth because the Niberian body wasn't evolved right to such hard labor on this type of planet but he had discovered much more gold and much higher amounts deep in the earth, and wanted to start a mining operation that would go underground. The two requested what to do from King Anu, to which King Anu himself came to earth and approved the mining operation to expand. Then Enlil, Anu's heir, was appointed commander of the fleets, overall mining operation functions, and Eden, while Enki was given lordship over Africa and all the scientific stuff. However, Alalu was pissed that he wasn't offered a position, since he was the former king of the Nibiru and considered himself still the king, before being deposed of by Anu, and in his wrath he challenged Anu to a wrestling match. A Nibiruan custom, apparently. He was defeated by Anu while pinned on the ground, but then he rose up and bit Anu's wiener off. And you had to leave the planet to go back to Nibiru to be healed, while Alalu was exiled with his grandson to Mars. So yeah, these uh, aliens, I guess, they like to wrestle naked like ancient Greeks, and biting wieners was totally on the table as a tactic. Mars had already had stations established on it to assist in the transportation of minerals back to Nibiru. Thanks to the low gravity, it was ideal for a shipping hub, so, Alalu was put in charge of the operation on Mars and the Anunnaki continued their operation for an unknown amount of time in harvesting the gold from the Earth. Eventually though, the Anunnaki miners started to get pissed. Back on their home planet of Nibiru, they had a year-round consistent temperature. Not too hot, not too cold. So, Earth's drastic weather changes was really messing with them. and. On top of that, they had to do physical labor all day. The Anunnaki workers were... Well, I guess there's speculation on what the purpose of the Igigi were, because a lot of people think that they were just the space-born Anunnaki who were like on the, the planetary stations like Mars or on the moon, but others consider them to be the workers. These Igigi or the workers, whatever Whichever way you want to look at it, the workers who were doing all the hard labor started to rebel, and the mining operations slowed to not only a halt, but a complete standstill, making Enlil and Enki look bad to the rest of the Nibiruans back on their home planet, including their father, King Anu. In both Sitchin's work and the mainstream archaeological work on the Anunnaki from Sumerian myth, the Igigi have little elaboration. But they seem to be like a lower class of nibiruans a lower ranking group of gods or perhaps even genetically altered slaves who seem similar to the anunnaki or even some say they could be a slave alien race brought with the anunnaki to earth who knows in any case the wiener biter Alalu's grandson on mars gains the support of both the Igigi on earth and mars in a revolt and anzu moves to take over the earth and kill the sons of anu both Enlil and Enki. And so the War of the Olden Gods began. The war was devastating and nearly wiped out all the Agiki, but the warriors of Enlil were victorious. However, without a workforce, the Anunnaki were forced to work the mines, which they did for 40 days before rebelling as well and refusing to mine any longer. They begged Enlil to figure something out, but he refused to do anything about it and this is when enki offered to create a worker from the native species on the planet the primitive ancestors of humans though enlil refuses it is taboo to genetically alter the natural evolution of native species with sentience on alien planets in the galactic community apparently and earth actually was well known in the galactic community with many visitations over the eons from other aliens however nibiru needed gold and the anunnaki were looking they were looking like they were in pretty bad shape at the moment the home planet was suffering greatly as their oxygen supply was slowly running out so in the end despite whatever rules and regulations other aliens in the cosmos all followed it was put to a vote and concluded that the primitives would indeed be elevated to become the servant race of the Anunnaki. The Homo erectus were captured and experimented on, with many prototypes being created by Ninma and Enki. But the Homo erectus were very similar to the ancestors of the Nibirians from their ancient past, so they were already kinda genetically compatible. Thus, the genetic tampering worked well and uh, the DNA spliced extremely efficiently. There were of course many defective hybrids made, including human-animal-like monstrosities, which is where our legends of things like the Minotaur, Harpies, or any like human-animal-hybrid monster, this is where those legends come from because the Anunnaki actually kept them around as pets, in a way. But then eventually they did create a stable form of humans, with yet another subspecies with higher consciousness being developed and upgraded later this first form of humans being kind of just automatons in a way, and extremely easy to manipulate and incredibly naive. Now, I'm going to take a a quick break from Sitchin's Anunnaki for a second and go over some real-world anomalies concerning our DNA. In mainstream science, there is something called Missing Link, which I have mentioned in this series, but I will elaborate upon a bit. The term itself, the missing link, is actually unscientific, and evolutionary biologists don't even use it. I just said it because it's something that the masses will understand. Natural selection is incredibly factual, and nobody in the scientific community really uses the missing link term at all in modern times. I guess some universities are teaching propaganda that the missing link has been found because there was this guy who was emailing me and he was really pissed off that I was talking about the missing link. And he, he was like, it's totally been found. Just go to school, dummy. And then like, I'm looking at my stack of books and like my mom's a scientist and I keep up with scientific breakthroughs and everything. So I'm pretty up to date and informed concerning all these things. Yeah, there's no missing link found, buddy. Also, if this guy actually knew anything about, like uh, evolutionary scientists, he know that the missing link term is actually rarely used for a couple reasons. Firstly, the missing link term implies that there is a single key to make everything fit, something no scientist believes. And there's a few examples of people trying to use this term wrong, like uh, the famous Lucy, which was discovered in Ethiopia back in 1974, and was thought to be, quote unquote, the missing link between ape and man. However, the more that the bones were studied, <laughs> they turned out just to be an extinct ape. And then there's the Java man, there's Eda, there's so many examples. Many people have used this term extremely irresponsibly And has led to much misinformation such reports give people the false impression that science has at long last discovered the fossilized remains of half human half ape creatures thereby proving darwin's theory of evolution to be true these people often hate religion or any thought of spirituality or god whatsoever they're usually atheists or you know some kind of radical usually completely consumed in the dogma of materialism But the fact of the matter is, this isn't the case, the missing link has never been found. Though news headlines and articles and books who use the headline missing link found are incredibly good for business, so I'll give them that. Though when it comes down to it, no, saying that the missing link has been found is very ignorant. Anyway, around 200,000 years ago, there is a sudden upgrade to human genetics that remains unexplained in science to this day biologists find this sudden upgrade in brain size and consciousness 200,000 years ago impossible and according to our science should have taken millions of years to accomplish humans go from a primitive caveman to the modern humans we see today in what seems overnight and the homo sapiens sapiens as we are today pretty much are as perfect of a match going back 35,000 years ago mirroring modern man let me just double-check on that. Yes. And if you know anthropology, our history really begins around 40,000 years ago. So I'm not calling anyone out. But if you had this knowledge, Sitchin could have just aligned his story with real science. But if you want to think more abstract, then the timeline Sitchin gives with the human upgrades from primitives matches up with the real-world unexplained upgrades in our genetics as yet unexplained and anomalous in mainstream science perfectly. To be quite honest, we as humans, as we are today, should not exist scientifically. And I didn't even get started on what geneticists call our junk DNA. DNA that is straight up turned off. All anyway, I'm getting lost in the woods. Rant over. After a quick break, we will get back to Sitchin's epic on the history of the alien Anunnaki.
1: listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad free episodes of the show and the, Discord channel. and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course, Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But well, most, well, most of all, thanks for listening. Well, most of all
0: King of Nibiru believed in genetic purity, in saying that humans were not the greatest thing in the world to him. And as his heir Enlil followed his father's outlooks, he wasn't really keen on these uh, genetically altered new humans either, however Enki relished his creations, and this caused a split that already pretty much had a division with Enlil and Enki being rivals. Anki was so into his experiments, he used the womb of his own wife to birth the first perfected human, and he was amazed that Nibiran DNA and human DNA were so compatible, theorizing that the two species could even have sex and create offspring because they were so similar, a secret that he kept from Enlil because it would have infuriated him. And this suggested some common ancestry between the aliens and humans, even though Nibirians were ridiculously more ancient and advanced. But eventually, the first human was born from Enki's wife's womb, Adamu. Enki's wife, Ninma, then takes another DNA seed into her womb and gives birth to Tiamat, the first female version of the humans. This hybrid experiment was a great success, but these humans were not able to procreate on their own, at least at this uh, first, this first um, prototype. So among the Anunnaki, a new position was created, the birth goddess position, which was very frowned upon and hush-hush, but these humans turned out to be good servants overall and excellent workers in the mines, and the gold started to flow back again to Nibiru in massive quantities, far more than they ever had before. The Anunnaki were much larger than humans and could live for hundreds of thousands of years, But they were not seeking a copy, they were seeking workers, and they got exactly what they paid for. No, it was frowned upon. Humans became the day-to-day operational workers from all aspects of life in Eden and beyond. In the Anunnaki civilization on Earth, they were pretty much everywhere once the prototypes were all settled and, you know, everything was set in motion. And this went on for a long time. However, despite this worker being created and quite successful, Enki and Ninma kept up their experiments. DNA used from Enki's rib turned out to be perfect for the female version, and thus, a breed of human was created that could reproduce on its own. Not only that, but Enki had endowed his children with higher consciousness, and thus perfected his creations in his eyes and the eyes of his wife Ninma. Does this sound familiar? Maybe to the Sumerian version? Or how about the tale of Adam and Eve and Eve being made from Adam's rib? Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Just with added sci-fi instead of spiritual gods of the cosmos, or the Hebrew god Yahweh. In any case, the fate of these new humans is the same. When it was discovered, Enlil was pissed off that Enki made a version of humans that could reproduce on their own and kicked them out of Eden. But not only kicked them out of Eden, just like the tales from the Garden of Eden and the Sumerian mythology of humans getting kicked out of Eden, but he kicked them out of Anunnaki society as a whole. They still worked the mines though, and they were fertile as fuck. So humans started to reproduce all over because the mines were mostly in Africa, far from Enlil and it was embedded as a natural instinct within them to do so. But despite their exile, they did slowly weasel their way back into Anunnaki society, and basically fully took over the mining duty in Abzu, the main mining facility. And later, Enlil and Enki visited the moon to build a new spaceport. Enki was always kind of bitter that he was second to Enlil, even though he was the firstborn, but just born from an illegitimate mother, and in this new base on the moon, Enki promises the administration of it to his son Marduk, who will come into play in a much bigger role later, but Marduk is Enki's son and has pretty much always been present with him during this entire narrative. However, when the space station was complete, Enlil quickly insults Enki by giving command of the station to his own son, Utu, (laughs) which makes Enki not like Enlil even more making him pretty rebellious towards Enlil and looking for ways to piss him off. To which Enki had a lot of ideas. The rest of the Anunnaki didn't know that they had compatible DNA with the humans that he created. They didn't know that they could create offspring if they really wanted to with these human hybrids. But Enki knew. And one day Enki came across two women who were bathing. And they took a liking to him when they saw him taking a liking to him in a way that promised a good time and Enki went along with it, relishing in how much Enlil would be horrified at the mere thought of what he was doing. They were two different subspecies of humans, two with different genetic makeups and skin color. Both the normal human, don't get me wrong, but I'm assuming it was like like, um, like a near east human and an African human or something like that. Anyway, they get it on and Enki gets them both pregnant and they gave birth to a boy and a girl he named Adapa and Titi. Enki did genuinely love them and his children, as he did basically all humans for that matter, but he also incredibly loved pissing off Enlil, which is why a a lot of later like uh, offspring religious ideologies would make Enki as like a Satan type character because he was always antagonistic to God, and Lil, But, um, he violates a massive taboo by taking the children back to Edom with him to be educated and dressed like legitimate Anunnaki offspring of royal heritage. These are the first Nephilim, from a biblical perspective, though I gotta say, Sichem calls all the Anunnaki Nephilim. I guess this is basically Adam and Eve and even get taken on a space trip to see Anu back at the, at the home planet, Nibiru. Though how pissed Anu and Lil were isn't said, but I'm sure that Enlil was beyond furious. Now, Sitchin goes into a long history of linking the Hebrew lore to the Sumerian tablets and goes all the way to Enoch and uh, whatnot, with the trips to heaven being spaceship rides and the chariots of the gods or strange divine stuff like the spinning wheels with eyes. Actually, all turning out to just be spaceships. They just didn't understand the context of a spaceship when hearing oral traditions, so wrote down chronicles in a way that they and other ancient people of their culture could understand. There's also the whole massive time difference. The civilization that brought these myths to the world, the Sumerians, were basically gone as a power long before the Hebrews ever wrote down any Bible stories. They were ancient like at the beginning of civilization the recorded civilization from a mainstream perspective it basically goes sumeria egypt akkadian amorite assyrian babylonian phoenician and canaanite long before the hebrews were ever a thing maybe not in that order exactly but i'm sure you get the point the canaanites and phoenicians especially all lived where the hebrews originated from and had a massive influence on them In fact, archaeologically, the Hebrews are an offshoot of Canaanites. Though, remember, the Canaanites were not one unified faction, but a collection of tribes and city-states, all distinct but sharing a similar culture. The Elohim, the word for the Canaanite pantheons of gods, directly adopted by the Hebrews. Elohim, or shining ones, are essentially the Anunnaki gods. And... You can see why the establishment powers hate this stuff. (laughs) It goes against the narrative, especially when concerning religious establishments. But remember, I'm not against religion. I respect everyone's beliefs. I'm not going down that road at all. But a lot of religious people really hate this stuff. I mean, if you look up Zachariah Sitchin, there's tons of Sitchin debunked quote unquote stuff, but you can't really debunk something that can't be proven or disproven in the first place. And we don't even have close to the whole story and why would people try to pick a fight with mythology it makes them look dumb but then again i've gone through all this stuff in the first episode i believe and then like said it again in a couple of these episodes on the nephilim so i don't want to backtrack i can't wait until more tablets are discovered because you know that they're out there there's so much out there that we have yet to discover And in this age, this internet age, the age of information, people can't just get rid of this stuff that's found or like sweep it under the rug or try to suppress it because everybody's all communicating all at the same time. And uh, there's lots of misinformation in this age, but it also holds people accountable, at least on a mainstream scientific archaeological level. (laughs) Well, I mean, for the most part. Not really, though. But it's just harder to, like, uh, inhibit information, which is a good thing. Censorship is only used by evil and those who can have their narratives destroyed by truth. What these people, I mean, why these people are so eager to debunk the ineffable is because the ideas make them uncomfortable. That's it. It goes against the little box that they've accepted as reality. It goes against their conditioning. Instead of just looking at the Sumerian tablets as knowledge, they look at it as a threat and try to destroy it. But it only truly reveals how much doubt is in their subconscious about their beliefs. Now, as I said, I'm not saying you should believe any of this. Just absorb the knowledge and form your own ideas. Don't limit yourself. Expand your mind. And, oh god. I'm going off on a rant again. And I'm sounding kind of woo. But, eh. In any case, I'm getting lost in the woods yet again twice in one episode. So let's get back on track with Sitchin's epic theories on the alien Anunnaki. So these offspring between humans and the Anunnaki would go on to be rulers of cities later down the line. They are to what conspiracy theorists call the royal bloodline, though from a very different point of view. But at the start of this mingling, Enlil is totally against it. decrees it an abomination and makes it illegal. Marduk, the son of Enki, quickly defies Enlil and, just like his father, has sex with them and also even marries a human woman, which creates an entirely separate bloodline of Nephilim. Around 100,000 to 30,000 BCE, a bunch of the Anunnaki stop listening to Enlil altogether and begin mating with humans much to the fury of enlil later there is a conflict between the anunnaki and these hybrids so that pisses off enlil even more and Enlil also sees how fertile humans are with their shorter lives they breed far more eagerly than any enunnaki and we're quickly covering the planet but despite enlil's anger at enunnaki having sex with humans and creating these hybrid offspring something far more unsettling was beginning to be noticed within the Anunnaki society. They were aging. Aging noticeably, something normally so slow it was basically unnoticeable to them. There were elixirs back on Nibiru that could fix them up, but that stuff was not around on Earth. But when it was approaching, the Anunnaki began to talk about returning to Nibiru to stop or fix their aging. However, one of Enki's sons, Nurgle, reported that there were issues with the polar ice caps on the planet, and that soon when Nibiru returned, it would completely destroy them and cause waves to consume the Earth. So ships from Nibiru were sent to evacuate the Anunnaki, and among them came the mysterious Galzu, who informed the oldest Anunnaki who have been on Earth that returning to Nibiru would mean certain death for them, and he claimed that this message was sent by Anu himself, the king of Nibiru and their father. They'd been on Earth for too long and it had unforeseen harmful effects on their bodies that were evolved for an entirely different planet. For the time being, they did not know how to cure this this aging issue and had to be trapped on Earth because if they left or went back to Nibiru, they would die, according to Galzu. They'd used gold to block the radiation on their home planet to fix the atmosphere and indeed, Gold really does have properties that block radiation. It's used in all space shuttles. And they would need to find some similar solution for themselves, and they thought that gold would be the answer, but Gaozu convinced them to stay on the planet. And Gaozu also convinced them that he was a prophet who had powers, and was also called the Great Knower, one of the chosen servants of the creator of all. Which I guess is God, but I don't know. It gets pretty weird. And by this time, humans have diverged into four distinct racial groups, all in different areas of the world. Enlil saw this adaptation and thriving as a threat. He was already pissed off about humans being able to breed and think, and then the Anunnaki started mating with them to create abominations, so he was pretty pissed off. Enlil was defiant at any thought of a human joining the ranks of Anunnaki leadership or the ruling class he'd kill them all first. And luckily for Enlil, the planet Nibiru was in its orbit when it's uh, closest to Earth, which always causes issues, and Enu confirmed this, with the scientists on Nibiru predicting the ice sheets at the North and South Pole melting, and this would cause the entire planet to be covered in water. But even though they were stuck on Earth now, the Anunnaki did have bases underground on the moon, Mars, not to mention a whole fleet of spaceships in orbit along with an orbiting space station. So Enlil figured that he'd just take the Anunnaki and leave without telling the hybrids and the humans and uh, just let them get wiped out. To which Enlil immediately ordered to make this happen, having all the gods swear to follow through and keep it secret. Even Enki was sworn to this plan on pain of death to which he obeyed, but not really, and planned to save his children. The mysterious Galzu also assisted in saving humanity from the shadows. Galzu came to Enki in a dream and gave him directions on how they could save humanity. When Enki awoke, he knew that Galzu was much more than he seemed. To dream was quite a feat of the Shining Ones, but Enki got to work in saving his children Many Anunnaki looked at humans as their children, though, not just Enki and Ninma. And to keep his oath, Enki <laughs> cheated. He uh, talked to the wall in the, at the home of a righteous man named... Crap, what's his name? Hold on a sec. A man named Ziusudra's house, who happened to also be Enki's Nephilim son. He talks to the wall of the house and... This Sumerian Noah overhears Enki talking about a tablet that had been given to him by the mysterious white-haired Galzu, and where to find it, and to follow its instructions, and a certain number of chosen to take with him. It gave instructions to build a submersible craft that would survive the cataclysm, and Enki and Ninma would find them when it was over in which the two Anunnaki would get back to the lab and replicate their children and animals and other life forms on Earth. So I'm pretty sure that this tablet thing was like a... Sitchin portrays it as like a... Like a... God, can't think right now. Like a hard drive that stores data of DNA that can be replicated. This version of Noah follows the plan and as Nibiru came close, the Earth began to shake and lightning lit up the skies and. You know, cataclysm stuff. The ice caps melted and the Anunnaki watched as it all went to shit. Kind of like a sports event, all watching it from space, with Enlil probably rubbing his hands with malicious joy. For 40 days and 40 nights, the earth raged with the deluge, destroying the Grand Anunnaki cities and all but the Anunnaki themselves. Or so they thought.
2: Enki and Ninma buried their records and computer programs deep in the Iraqi soil. They prepared genetic banks of Earth's creatures to save from the coming flood. Male and female essences and life eggs they collected. Of each kind, two by two, they collected for safekeeping while an Earth circuit to be taken. Therefore, the living kinds to recombine. The day the deluge, they waited. Sitchin, Z, 2002, The Lost Book of Enki, 2016.
0: When it was all over, Enki's craft filled with the last humans and DNA settled on Mount Ararat, exactly as Enki planned. And Lil was utterly furious at Enki, more so than ever before, because they noticed the survival and the craft from space he accused Enki of breaking his oath, to which Enki denied, saying all he did was talk to a wall and leave behind a tablet with some information on it. He'd technically kept his oath to the letter by not telling any human of the deluge. Shit was starting to get real, real quick, and looked pretty dark until Enki revealed to Enlil that the man in the craft was his own son that he loved very much, and with all the other gods around them. Either through genuineness or politics, Enlil calmed down after that and overlooked the survivors and the DNA stockpile. Though Sitchin has a different theory on why Enlil relented on his bloodlust to kill all humans, the Anunnaki were in contact with the Nibiruans on the home planet and it turned out that Nibiru was kinda slowly going off track and that the interaction being so close to earth once again damaged the planet's atmosphere in the same manner as it was damaged before, (laughs) which meant that Enlil once again needed miners and to start the gold shipments back up again at full force back to Nibiru. All the work that they'd done in fixing the atmosphere from the radiation and whatnot, all of that had been destroyed. And the ancient home planet was once again in peril So Enlil getting orders from King Anu was secretly very happy at Enki's treachery because it saved him a lot of trouble. It turned out that he actually had a need for these humans, so Enlil commanded Enki to get to work and bring humans back in full force as well as everything that they needed to prosper and grow. And we'll continue after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles.
3: Loch Ness, because I'm the Loch Ness Monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting post on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel anytime. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into, Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish. With twenty nine thousand plugins to pick from, by going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry today, and if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry.
4: Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual, or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO, or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale, and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time, and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you.
0: I'm back. Okay, so the deluge after the deluge is like a whole nether chapter concerning the Anunnaki. Enlil directly takes over the Near East, and it will be ruled by him and his children from that point on, with the rest of the earth being split up among the Anunnaki and their children to rule as well. Enki takes the land west of the Nile River, which is basically all Africa and his uh, children also picking up rulership. The land that was old Egypt would be born again and become a new landing site of Nephilim spaceships since the old one was destroyed. According to Sitchin, the pyramids being stellar tools throughout the uh, surface of the earth, but Egypt being the most important one to the Anunnaki. Marduk takes the title of Ra and splits the rule between his sons Osiris and Seth. And basically, all the earliest pantheons of human culture are set in stone from this point on, with their children and children's children, also given human populations to rule as time passed. Eventually, Jericho is founded, which actually has been discovered in real life and dates back to 9000 BCE from, a, from radiocarbon testing, but all the ancient stuff was made around this point in history according to Sitchin such so as, like, uh, Gobekli Tepe, many of the pyramids across the world and uh, whatnot. And the Anunnaki just kind of let the races of humans do their own thing for the first time in history. Well, I mean, other were the ones that they needed as servants and miners. But human culture was kind of given the chance to evolve on its own. The mines of Africa were flooded still, but they found an exposed mother load of gold in South America and the Andes Mountains which would remain neutral territory to the Anunnaki until Enlil takes over later. But with the division of power among the Anunnaki came more strife among their number than ever before. The history of the Anunnaki is riddled with infighting and there was a new war brewing down in Egypt. This conflict would be known as the First Pyramid War. It was all instigated not only by the murder of Osiris, but also because those who didn't control the spaceports in Egypt considered it far too valuable to be in the hands of just one of the factions. So the war is basically about supremacy. Whoever controls the spaceports can have sway over all the other Anunnaki factions on Earth. It is kind of a proxy Enlil-slash-Enki war in which ended with Enki's forces being victorious and Marduk going kind of off the rails, it seems even declaring himself the Supreme Anunnaki God of Earth above all others. This was because of a prophecy that stated he was destined for supremacy among the Anunnaki seen in the stars. Enlil was chosen as ruler of the Anunnaki as heir to Anu, so... things were kinda awkward. But then the Second Pyramid War started by the Enlil side because they were not happy about Enki's side having control of the spaceports which ends in the pyramids being emptied of their technology altogether. Ninma arranges a peace treaty to stop the fighting, and Thoth is given rulership over Egypt. With the loss of the pyramids, the Anunnaki create a gateway to space facilities in Jericho. But all was not just war and conflict, because the Anunnaki also got some good news around this time. It turned out that Galzu the Prophet, The Nibiruan who told the Anunnaki they could not return to Nibiru or they'd die was full of shit and that the earth changes to their bodies could be cured. However, Anu did say to the rest of the Anunnaki that they had messed up and that it was the will of the creator of all that humans inherit the earth. Anu ordered the Anunnaki to teach humans science and knowledge and spirituality so that they may one day reach their potential they would have reached this potential on their own if they had just been left to natural evolution. But with the dramatic increase in their progress, thanks to the Anunnaki, they needed a little bit more of a guiding hand than they normally would in comparison to other sentient civilizations in the cosmos. And as I just said, humans were allowed to kind of do their thing for the first time after the deluge, but basically now they were being, they were being like uh, cultivated to create their own unique civilizations, and the Anunnaki would guide them to blossom. Anu declared that they had to divide themselves up to each part of the world to watch over them. From now on, the Anunnaki would influence and rule from the background. So when I say rule from this point on, I don't really mean literally ruling as like a king in a castle or something concerning the Anunnaki, but they would actually uh, influence and rule from the shadows with like proxy people, being the the figurehead. Enki and his sons kept Egypt and Africa, Enlil would continue to control the Near East along with his children, Inanna would watch Asia, and the fourth region of Earth would be reserved for the Anunnaki as a whole. Anu himself would come down to Earth and go to South America. Though, Anu does not go to rule, but to visit and establish education for the natives. And keep in mind, this is all pretty much going down before recorded history as we know it at least. Of course, Sumeria and the ancient advanced civilizations rise, and in time, the Anunnaki would kind of splinter and become more divided even having many proxy wars with one another and their offspring that ruled as patron gods over cities as well, basically all across the world. And eventually, Marduk would return to Enlil's lands to establish the Tower of Babel. Marduk builds his tower to communicate more easily with the home planet, but it was destroyed. And this caused a lot of conflict between Marduk and Enlil and all his sons, there was definitely something brewing with Marduk and he was becoming less and less able to be counseled, not only by Enki, but by anyone. But this is where the story of, um, in the Bible, like when in the tower of Babel story, when everybody's all split up and given different languages and can't communicate with one another, this is that the Anunnaki mix up human languages. So humans all spread out lots of bloodshed and, uh, Pretty much Marduk gets the idea of complete world domination at this point. And with his bloodline not even being heirs, even in the First Land of the Anunnaki, which belonged to Enlil and his children, war was a bruin. Marduk returns to Egypt and deposes Thoth, then accidentally kills Inanna's betrothed husband, Demuzi. He's imprisoned in the Great Pyramid but escapes into exile. When he returns, Marduk attempts to rebuild his tower in Babel, but he gets attacked by Inanna, killing a lot of Marduk's followers. The Anunnaki fought for some time, though eventually Marduk was convinced to leave the Near East and stop the conflict by his brother Nurgle, the god of entropy and pestilence. But with all this conflict between the Anunnaki, the Anunnaki kind of seemed to follow their own ambitions from this point on, with Enlil not necessarily considered the overall leader of the Anunnaki. Uh, and it was about this time that Enlil received dread messages from the prophet Galzu that dark times and great evil were coming by the future actions of Marduk. Though this is the same prophet who told them they couldn't return to Nibiru, but was wrong, still, He was considered the prophet of the creator of all, so Enlil listened to him. The prophet warned that Marduk would make good on the claim that he was the supreme god of earth above all other Anunnaki, and Marduk had already invaded his territory and caused lots of death in it, so Enlil took Gal'zu's warnings seriously. In the Sumerian tablets, Enlil communicates with Abraham, or I mean Abram, he's called Abram in the tablets and tells him to go to the land of Canaan to protect the sacred sites where the sky chariots come and go from the other tribes of men in the area. It was basically a starport or stargate for the Anunnaki in the middle of nowhere. So Abram and his family obey Enlil and uh, basically just pack up all their stuff and leave. And he learns stuff in Egypt and gets some treasure there then continues to Canaan. When Abram and his family got there, They thought the land was kind of s**t, and they couldn't really keep flocks or work with it, but Anil told Abram that his descendants would rule the area and not to worry, just to go with it. And it was then that he made a covenant with Abram, who changed his name to Abraham. And it was a covenant not only with him and his family, but all his descendants. It was a covenant with the Hebrews. This is uh, Sitchin's conclusion of the birth of the Hebrews and Enlil being the Old Testament God. Enlil is Yahweh. Which is pretty weird because Enlil is obviously pretty in opposition to humans from the start of all this story on the Anunnaki and even wanted them to just like be wiped out completely. Originally, he just wanted a robotic slave race incapable of breeding or even having free thought. (laughs) <laughs> Enlil was responsible for tons of human suffering in the Sumerian texts. It was Enki that considered humanity his children and took care of them. Well, Enki and Ninma, among other Enunnaki, obviously. But you know what I'm saying. Anyway, Enlil does basically a 180. He's pretty much a dick up to this point, but we're following Sitchin, so I guess Enlil is the god of the Hebrews and he eventually grows to care about humans and especially with a focus on the Hebrews. Enlil had always been the inhibitor of humanity, the oppressor, the one always against the advancement of humanity, that thought of us as nothing more than disposable tools. He kicked humanity out of Eden and uh, was pretty pissed when Anki and Ninma granted us knowledge and the ability to think. This guy is the god of the Old Testament. It's a, a hard narrative to swallow, but That's basically what Sitchin says. Which I'm sure is extremely offensive to many, and it's no wonder his work is so controversial.
2: Yahweh fell silent as he stood up to leave. Enki, to him his arm, extended. Let us lock arms as brothers, as comrades, who together challenges on an alien planet confronted. He said, Yahweh, grasping his brother's arm, hugged him as well. The Book of Enki 314 through 318.
0: Though, we'll get into that in a bit. Zechariah Sitchin would disagree with that and say Yahweh was more than what I just said, but we'll get into that. And while the Israelites are basically settling in Canaan, the Marduk faction is busy. Marduk declares the Age of the Ram and returns to Enlil's lands intent on his quest to rule all the Anunnaki and the Earth itself. He moves into Enki's lands with his followers causing a whole bunch of havoc and destruction, establishing the city of Babylon that asserts its power over the entire region. Though his goal of capturing the starport in Sinai was leaked by spies to other Anunnaki, exactly like Galzu had told Enlil in his dreams. The Anunnaki came together in a council for the first time in a long time. They put all of their problems and issues with one another aside to unite to oppose this rising threat. All the Anunnaki and even Marduk's brothers all shared the opinion that he had to be stopped once and for all. Only Enki voiced dissent, reminding them of the destiny prophesized that Marduk would rise to prominence, and there was nothing they could do about it. But the Anunnaki decided to use the weapons of war left by Alalu. Remember from the beginning of this story, the the wiener-biter, how he had weapons of terror that they buried under the earth. They decided to use these weapons to put a stop to Marduk once and for all. In the end, they just all agreed to nuke the starport, rendering Marduk's war pointless. So the Anunnaki at the base were warned to abandon it, and Abraham was to be warned and his kin spared. The port gets nuked and it basically vaporizes all of marduk's armies in the area but the evil wind as it's been called in the ancient texts or sitchin says it's like a radioactive cloud that descends on the near east killing all the advanced ancient civilizations except somehow babylon is spared oh and the the hebrews but they are very small in number with the water becoming poisonous and the land barren and the mighty Sumerian civilization vanishing from prominence however somehow Marduk's home of Babylon was completely spared which made the Anunnaki question their actions and perhaps the prophecy of Marduk's rise was true so after all this Enlil surrenders his territory of the Near East to Marduk as well as other ruling Anunnaki in the areas and Enlil leaves to the lands beyond the ocean to continue the mining operation, with the spaceports in South America being the last ones that Enlil's faction controlled. At this time, Enki finds a scribe named, hold on, let me try to pronounce this correctly, Endu, Endebasar, Ndubasar? He's one of the few survivors of the evil wind that devastated the land. And he's taken by Enki to chronicle the Anunnaki and their story on Earth on 14 tablets of cuneiform clay. And these tablets are our oldest history, basically. This is where history begins in a way that us modern humans would understand, at least history being recorded that we can look at and read and understand. It's a—it's a, like an objective view, despite how improbable objectivity and history may be. Society slowly reforms itself in the Near East, and the Hittites eventually come in and control Anatolia as well as lesser empires now unopposed spread out in the territory and the dominance of the age of the Bull begins I guess there's a lot more infighting among the Anunnaki and more breeding with humans and for the most part the Anunnaki pretty much play background roles Marduk indeed rises to supremacy and dominates the Near East religions to the point that the world almost became monotheistic. Marduk would be adopted by other cultures too, becoming a variety of different names. But, you know, the Hebrews obviously grow, they become the Israelites, and the world kind of falls into place as we know it in ancient history from this point on. So I could go on with the tedious detail, but that basically sums up Sitchin's work. It's kind of anticlimactic because the Anunnaki just start leaving Earth altogether in 500 BCE, though not all of them. There's many of them still here, and it's all kind of a cliffhanger. Enlil and Enki did go to South America and had tons of influence over there. A lot of their gods are supposedly representations of the Anunnaki. But this episode is a crude, but... I think it's a decent overview of the entire mythology of Sitchin when I was first reading his books I constantly thought well does Sitchin say that the Shining Ones will come back yep he even wrote a book dedicated to the end of days called (laughs) go figure the end of days though as a spoiler the apocalypse is not the planet blowing up or anything like that everybody dying it's more the veil being lifted from our eyes as a species. Only a select few are capable of shining or finding higher consciousness, tapping into the spark that Enki gifted to us because it's actually pretty hidden within us. The apocalypse is when we become like Enki and how he intended us to be all along as a whole, not just a select few who discover how to see through all the bullshit and social conditioning. In the book, Sitchin states that a lot of modern dogma politics, religion, mainstream media programming. It's all just a form of control. And the Anunnaki don't have to wait until Nibiru comes back. He specifically corrects this assumption. Early on, they did need space travel directly from uh, Earth to Nibiru when the planets were closer aligned in their orbits around the sun but they did eventually install the technology to travel through space-time in an instant if they really wanted to through gates. They don't have to wait till Nibiru is close to come and go. They had at one point, but that was eons ago, hundreds of thousands of years in the past. However, he also states that he doesn't have all the answers about it, like anyone worth their salt would actually say. One of the best ways to tell bullshit is if somebody is saying that they have all the answers and know all the stuff. Obviously. Now let's analyze a few of the things about Sitchin's work because, like anything, it should be scrutinized and analyzed, not just accepted at face value. Like I've said already, don't believe any of this, just absorb the knowledge. These tablets are the source of 90% of the mythology and religions across all human history and are worth knowing since they are so key to human heritage. There are many other tablets from various times in Sumerian history and the surrounding cultures that have yet to be discovered, but these ones are the most important in our modern age. First of all, one thing to remember is that Sitchin was uh, raised as a very devout and religious youth and grew up going to Jewish school. In fact, his curiosity of the Anunnaki was spawned from asking in class why they said giants instead of Nephilim in the Bible because he was used to reading a different translation of the Torah, aka Bible, that was more accurate, and he wondered why the words were changed in that version that he uh, had to read at school. But Sitchin was told to shut up and don't ask questions. Just go with it and listen to what you're told. (laughs) Which had the opposite effect on Zachariah Sitchin and generated his lifelong quest to discover who the Nephilim were. That he wasn't allowed to learn about, much less talk about. And I gotta give it to Sitchin, he remained devout and religious till his dying days, despite all his discoveries that uh, paint a very different picture than mainstream society will ever be ready to accept anytime soon. But like any person stuck in the dogma of any sort, Sitchin had knowledge filtration and confirmation bias, which lead to much of his conclusions being skewed. He wanted to work around the alien stuff and still connect it to the bible as much as he could so while there is a lot of gold in his work there's a lot of useless lead too this is just my opinion by the way i probably should have stated that at the beginning of these conclusions at the end but as an example he was indeed asked who yahweh was and would refuse to connect it to its obvious analogy enlil something basically everyone else who's ever gone over his work has done However, Enlil does chill out a bit in the tablets after the deluge and no longer openly oppresses humanity, so there's that. There's many aspects of his work that is correct, I'm not trying to debunk him, and as I'm sure you noticed, there was an uncanny similarity to the Sumerian mythology I talked about in the previous episode. But still, let's critique a couple of things and see if they are true in our real world, everyday life, that's uh, backed up by legitimate sources such as planet x the notorious nibiru i have read some of the wackiest shit i've ever read from conspiracy theorists about the the planet x which a lot of debunkers will openly say is bullshit and that there's no other planet in the solar system that we haven't discovered now is that true well the science behind that would surprise you scientists have indeed found evidence to suggest that there is another celestial body out there through mathematics and more evidence comes from six cooper belt objects that zoom around the sun on an elliptical path that all point the same direction even though the bodies are moving at different speeds with a 30 degree tilt downward relative to the other planets in the solar system you may not understand what i just said but the odds of that being random are .007 so the only real thing other than them doing this randomly is something influencing their unique orbit since things just don't work that way without gravitational influence it also means whatever is influencing these belt objects has the same wonky orbit different than the rest of the celestial bodies in our solar system just like how planet nibiru is said to be at least in Sitchin's work, among many others. But, uh, it can also explain the wonky orbits of two dwarf planets discovered back in 2003 in the belt, who share the same tilt and whatnot. The orbit of this unknown celestial body has been mapped out with mathematics, but we have no idea where it is in its orbit. But telescopes on Earth do indeed have a good chance of spotting it when it comes around. As of yet, though, it is still officially unproven, though highly likely... To be true, at least uh, from a mainstream science point of view. After the discovery of more dwarf planets in our solar system like Sedna and Eris, Pluto was demoted from being an official planet. But if we find this mysterious planet, we'll be back up to nine again. I mean, it's even on the NASA website, though it's important to remember that it's still hypothetical. But what's funny is some scientific circles say it isn't a thing while at the same time admitting to the math so there's like this math giving evidence of some giant object orbiting in our solar system influencing everything, but I don't know. To me, it's like looking at the sun and being like, no, uh it's not yellow, it's, it's purple, but like holding your hands over your eyes. The reason for them being so biased, even though there's so much evidence, is probably because independent researchers were the ones to first discover the anomaly, not mainstream scientists. And you know how egos work and how the corrupt establishment works. So it doesn't even matter what truth is, what matters is what the 1% want. Always remember that so-called experts, quote-unquote, are the ones who suffer the worst from confirmation bias if they're oblivious to themselves. You can't learn anything new if you think you have all the answers. There are dogmatic groups that can't allow something outside themselves to get any credit, much less admit people are right. They've been mocking for years. So yes, officially there is a mathematical anomaly affecting the orbits of celestial bodies in our solar system not visible to us at the moment. That's a fact. But what about Sitchin talking about these ancient nukes and the evil wind that destroyed the Near East? The attack that the Shining Ones did to try and kill Marduk. Well, there is some interesting art on ancient cylindrical seals that depict what really does look like mushroom clouds and straight up bombs. Go check it out. I mean, if you look at it, you'd think that it was a modern day like prop or something. And they originate in the era of Nebuchadnezzar II during the Neo-Babylonian Empire. There are also ones that show trees dying and people dying from something in the air, little bubble looking things in the art that could be considered to be the evil wind in the ancient texts, and the trees and people are dying from the fallout being carried out on the wind. But that could just be a coincidence, right? So what else do I got? Well, the man who invented atomic weapons, the ever bluntly honest Oppenheimer, was once asked in an interview if his experimental atomic detonations were the first time ever for the detonation of atomic weaponry on Earth. His response was interesting. He said, I quote, Yes, in modern times. And this is because there are some anomalies on Earth concerning radiation, with objects being found that actually only come about from such intense blasts as atomic weaponry. Oppenheimer was a lover of the ancient Indian epics, and he could even read the texts in their original language to avoid mistranslations on the issues. He was a professor before World War II and was known to quote passages from the Mahabharata in every single class lecture. The wars in these texts seem to be modern and also futuristic that are described in immense detail. The Mahabharata and all of these crazy sci-fi battles from the past within the texts are what likely inspired much of his work, and just like every other mythology in the world, for the most part. The origins of these ancient texts were born from the Anunnaki, with the usual similarities analogous to one another commonly found throughout the ancient world. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't unique, don't get me wrong. Just that according to this narrative we're talking about, these were most likely Anunnaki and their offspring in the Mahabharata, The gods. After all, the Anunnaki were spread out through all the world to rule, remember, and often fought one another. But so what, right? Where's the evidence? Well, one of the first things discovered after America's atomic testing was that the blast site had a strange object that wasn't there before, called trinitite. This trinitite has been found elsewhere in the world, but by different names, such as desert glass which turns out is actually only formed from sand heated at temperatures above 1,700 degrees centigrade. Desert glass has been and can still be found in the places Zachariah Sitchin says the Anunnaki dropped the weapons of terror. In fact, the ancients used desert glass as fancy jewelry. The glass has been found under Neolithic, Sumerian, and Babylonian layers at archeological sites in Iraq and all over the Near East as well as Egypt. It's also been found in Libya and India. I mean, some of this glass is super old, maybe even made from an asteroid or something. Who knows, it could have been natural, we just don't understand it yet. But asteroids, as far as we know, have never left desert glass, though they do burn around the temperature needed to create it. All meteors leave brown or gray bead-like tektite and are actually visually very different than desert glass. Also, desert glass dates back not really that old. And then there are the straight-up radioactive sites in India and Pakistan. These sites are consistent with what occurs from nuclear blasts. In Harappa and mohenjo daro ruined cities dating back 2500 BCE, they have glassified stone melted away at a single direction just like a nuclear blast as well as huddled skeletons in positions like they were in peril that have high levels of radioactivity. (sighs) So yeah, there is a decent amount of evidence that could support Sitchin on the weapons of terror used in ancient times. These anomalies remain unexplained and are pretty hush-hush in the mainstream world. How about the other smoking gun though? How about our DNA? I mean, according to Sitchin, weren't we made in a lab? If humans are hybrids with aliens, then wouldn't there be some kind of evidence in our DNA itself to suggest that there might have been some tampering? I mean, earlier in the episode, I did briefly talk about our sudden upgrade in DNA that is unexplainable to science that appears to have happened all at once around like 200,000 years ago or so, as well as the anomalous junk DNA that we have, which seems to just be turned off, which could be turned off through genetic manipulation, or who knows. These turned off DNA strands could mean a multitude of different things. I'm not going to get into it because it would take forever to try and explain. But it could mean that these genes were turned off to cause us to age faster, or to limit our level of consciousness. This is analogous to Enki giving us more DNA activation than Enlil wanted. Scientists like Dr. Bruce Lipton even state that our thoughts themselves can turn on and off certain genes that influence our entire psychological makeup, as well as physical bodies. So though there is no objective proof aliens mess with our DNA, it is completely possible theoretically. Oh my God, look how long I've been recording. So I'm going to stop here, or this episode will go on forever. My point isn't that any of this is proof for Sitchin, just that this evidence should raise some eyebrows that something's going on here and that anomalies are very real. And I want to know who this Galzu guy is that keeps showing up. I have asked other people and they say that he's a representative of like the Galactic Federation. So I guess there's plenty of weird ways to look at it, if you, um, I don't know. I mean, it's obvious that to Sitchin, he's a prophet of the creator of all. But like I've said, Sitchin bent over backwards to try and fit in his religious narrative into his translations of the Sumerian tablets. So personally, I don't really find that reliable. He also makes the Anunnaki seem to be down with this creator of all. I mean, it's obvious from an objective point of view, the Anunnaki were spiritual and practiced magic and were into all kinds of esoteric stuff while at the same time being scientific and technologically advanced, which is fascinating. But he makes them religious to this creator of all, and they just accept Galzu as a prophet. I could be wrong, it has been years since I've read many of the books but my analytical mind and my intuition says that there's something fishy there. I wish I knew cuneiform because then I'd go read him myself and see just who this Galzu is or even if he's actually in the tablets. Because as far as I've seen in my research, the only people who talk about Galzu are Sitchin and people who have worked off of Sitchin's stuff. Anyway, I'm starting to blob again, so I got to go before I don't ever end this episode. That's all for today's episode. Cryptic Chronicles is filmed in front of a live studio audience in a black hole at the center of the universe. No eldritch horrors were harmed in the filming of this episode. Hey Anubis!
2: Yes, Chronicler.
0: Why do mummies have trouble keeping friends?
2: I, I do not know why.
0: They're too wrapped up in themselves. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Spreaker, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and pretty much all podcast hubs. You look for us, we'll be there. Do me a favor, please leave a good review wherever you listen to this podcast. Please do it. Please. If you do, it means that we will be best friends forever. And by best friends forever, I mean don't talk to me. But I also, I mean, uh, like, yeah, let's leave a good review because that would be dope. And also, you'll be supporting the show, which means more awesome episodes like these, more consistently. And also, make sure you support Alt Tech. Check us out on YouTube, of course, Crypto Chronicles the YouTube. You'll find us. But also check us out on BitChute, Rumble, Daily Motion, Vimeo. We're gonna be any of those places, so yeah, do it. Just do it. Do it. Uh, What's that? Okay, hold on. Just give me one second. Okay, right back. Uh, hey, Cthulhu, what's up? Uh, no way. Really? Uh, okay, I'll tell him. So that was Cthulhu, and he was telling me that if you want to not go completely insane with, uh, cosmic horror madness, then you should probably support us on Patreon. It's the only way to keep your sanity, and it's the best way to avoid the wrath of Cthulhu. Just go to crypticchronicles.com. at the top you'll see the Chronicler's Vault. Click the thingy, do the stuff, it's, uh, it's just Patreon, not complicated. At a buck a month, you can get uncensored and full versions without any stupid ads or anything way before everybody else. You get the raw, best deal. Also you get bonuses that are going to be coming and uh, all kinds of goody stuff. Also you will have good karma and not go insane. So it's a bunch of good stuff there that uh, is objectively not bad, I think. Let's read a couple comments here. The first one from Chris Wedner, Wedner, Woodner. Hey, great show! It's very interesting to listen to when going to sleep. Cool, thanks, dude. And let's look here. Susan Brown says, "I listen to you every day." Well, thank you. That's nice of you. But there's only like, I think it's the forty-seventh episode, right? So. You're gonna run out of stuff soon, but don't worry, I'll keep it coming for you. And last, but definitely not least, let's go over the most handsomest, prettiest, smartestest, uh, coolestest people in the world to ever exist in the history of anything, my patrons. Thank you, John, the latest. You are super special, awesome, cool. Uh, Celestial Weavers, thank you. Alien X, thank you. Lorna Grubb, Thank you very much, Paul, Paul, thank you, Linda Gonzalez, thank you, Angie Allen, like usual, thank you, and Ashley, thank you, looks like I lost some patrons, but I also gained a bunch, so you guys are awesome, and I'm going to have plenty of goodies for you. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, thank you for listening to Cryptic Chronicles, and as one of the wisest people who ever lived once said... True wisdom comes to each of us when we realize how little we understand about life, ourselves, and the world around us.